Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh out loud humor and hitting you between the eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants because here we go. Man, we're back. I've kind of forgotten how to do this. Oh, I don't know, man. I'm rusty. I was like, oh my gosh, we got to get back going. And then I'm always thinking, why do people show up to hear me? I just have no earthly idea why that is. But so here's the thing. I thought I'd catch you up since the last time uh, you saw me, you were singing happy trails to you. Well, let me tell you what, those trails weren't so happy in the month of June. (laughs) So I took my trailer, and remember, I was going to boondock. I'm the wild woman, and I had researched how to have generators, and I had to have generators. See, it's not enough that you know how to do something. Can you physically maneuver what you know what to do? And as women, we, you got to think through that because you're going to be out in the woods by yourself. Nobody can help you do it. So I got these two generators, and I paralleled them together with cords, and I had all that. And remember, I had the dump tanks. I know y'all don't want to talk about stuff like that. But if you've ever been in an RV trailer, you have to dump. Well, if you're boondocking in the woods, you don't want to drive your trailer in every three or four days or a week if it's just you. Um, And so I had these dump tanks, and you dump it into the tank put it in the truck. Well, how do you get it in the truck if uh, fluid weighs eight eight pounds a gallon, right? So then I had to have a ramp, pull up the ramp in the truck. Y'all are like, this is why I don't do this. But anyway, well, if you're broke and you can't stay up north, you got to have a trailer. So anyway, you go and then you dump it in town and bring it back. And so anyway, I got all set up. 13 miles past Snowball exit a mile into the woods. I had some other friends that were a little ways down and they would come up like Thursday to Sunday, but the rest of the time it was just me. And so it took me really the month of June to kind of get set up with everything. I mean, I had set up, I had a workout room outside that I set up. I had decided, okay, here's my loop to run and I have my workout, my hammock, and I had visitors coming, but I'm gonna tell you what, The first time I was alone in those woods, when's the last time you were alone in the woods? I came home, I came back to the trailer one night, and when I tell you black, it was black. And when you got out of the trailer, it was silent. And by the time I got my key up into the thing, I'm telling you Bigfoot Sasquatch was breathing down my neck. And I barely got in, and praise God, I was smart enough to get a generator that so I could start the generator, but then at night, if I wanted to turn it off, I could just hit my phone, and the generator would turn off, because you don't want to go back out there with the boogie bears once you're inside. And so, one of my friends down here brought me this sticker, because she heard me tell this story of Sasquatch. So, the next day, I go into Target, And I bought every solar light they had. I put solar lights all around my rug. I put solar spotlights. I'm like, this girl is not coming home in the dark anymore. So, but I had to really overcome fear. I had to overcome being absolutely alone. 
Um, which, can I just tell you, there's all levels of loan. Let me, and I think I've sat in all of them. So anyway, I finally, I think, had gotten to where, okay, I can do this. It's going to be all right. And they shut down the entire national forest because of fires. Did y'all think of me when they did that? And my parents, by the way, were not thrilled with this situation at all. My dad could not sleep at night. Now, I had a gun. And I'm telling you, <laughs> and I know how to use it. So if somebody was going to break in, but my dad's like, you're living in a tinderbox. You're living in a tinderbox. You shouldn't even be out here. And so anyway, they shut down the entire national forest, all of Coconino National Forest. So I had 24 hours to go pack up all that I had put out there and get out. Well, this is working out. I'm like, great, Lord. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to rest and recuperate and get in the cool so I can run, so I'm not a crazy lunatic in the loony bin. This is all I'm trying to do, Jesus. And so I come out there, I'm overcoming everything, and you shut down the entire national forest because of fires. And I was having the biggest pity party you've ever seen. And so I have to go, and I have to, 24 hours, I'm packing up everything I set up and taking my trailer in. Well, I had joined Continental Golf Club uh, to pay, play golf for the summer. And so they let me stay on their gravel lot right by their driving range. And that was really nice of them. But that's not the most prime location, okay? I can't set up. People are coming in and out of a parking lot, but hey, who's, who's griping? I had some place to go. And so I was there for about two weeks trying to figure out what I was going to do. Is the summer ruined? Am I just going to put a for sale sign on everything and just say fire sale and just be done? with the whole thing. And so then the 4th of July weekend comes and uh, I was having, going through a bunch of personal pain too. <laughs> My friends are up there and on July 3rd, we go out to dinner and we come back and it's dark and there's another trailer parked beside me. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I had to be a member and I had to get a permit and I, all this. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they have a permit. So uh, my friend Sally and I, we she stayed with me in my trailer. We slept that night, and, and those guys woke up bright and early in the morning, and can I just tell you, they were so loud, and, so, and they're parked right next to me. We heard all about their antics the night before. We know all about what they did the night before, and uh, we wish we hadn't, and so we could hear them, and all of a sudden, they turn on this generator, and the guy goes, hey, why are you turning on that generator? And it was so loud, like it wasn't my generator. Mine are quiet. They're wonderful. Nope, they turned that on, and he had it on for about six minutes, and then they leave, and I think, okay, they're out of here. I get up to go walk uh, Winston, my white lab, and when I turn back around, I realize they stole my generators. <laughs> At that moment, I'm like, are you kidding me? I am like, okay. If I am the Job of the West Valley, I just need to know it. That, that I think I, I don't even believe in holy water, and I need someone to dump me in it. Like, I, I, what is the deal? I just sat down on the steps of my RV, and I was just silent. My friend was sitting there going, what's she going to do? Is she, is she going to cry? Is, this, is she going to run through the neighborhoods naked? Are we just going to have an absolute meltdown? What is happening? And I just sat there, and... 
So my friends left uh, for to go back to Phoenix, and I'm just going, filing a police report, doing all that junk. And so I was sitting there, and I thought, well, Shannon, you can either sit here and have a pity party, or you can go play golf, because it's right over there. So I get up, get ready, I go play golf. I start to play golf as a single, and it kind of slows down. If you're a golfer and you know you run into the person ahead of you at the tee, and I kept running into this young man. Uh, well, I say young, he's younger than me. But, and so finally, I looked at him, I said, hey, do you want to just play together because uh, I'm just going to keep running into it slow? He goes, yeah. He said, that's fine. He said, I'm just warning you, I'm not very good. And I looked down, he's playing golf in work boots. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, this is going to be good. So a couple holes in, he looks at me and he goes, so, what do you do? <laughs> I'm like, um, I go, I'm a speaker. I just stopped at that. And then about another hole, he goes, well, so what do you speak about? I'm thinking, gosh, you are just nosy, and I don't really want to go here because I'm mad. I'm really mad, but I'm a Bible teacher and a speaker and author. I teach about Jesus. And he, he kind of got tickled. He got this funny look on his face, and he started to laugh a little bit. And I looked at him. I go, what? He said, my wife's going to love this one. And I said, why's that? He said, because she's a believer and I'm not. And I go, oh. I go, why's that? Well, that started a conversation. And uh, he began to ask me so many questions, you cannot believe it. Well, let me tell you why. And he would ask that. And then I would teach him about it. And then he goes, huh, I've never heard that before. And then he would ask me another question, and then we would teach. I mean, by the time we were done, I just about taught him the whole Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, I went through the gospel. I, he said, one of my problems is I don't know why bad things happen to good people. And I go, well, <laughs> let me tell you about that one. I go, hey, this isn't our home. This is not my home. And so in this world, you will have trouble. And we went into this whole uh, conversation about that. And, I, and so he goes, wow. And then he uh, started sharing some other things about himself personally and his family and his marriage and different things. And I started laughing. I said, you know, if there's one thing I know, I said, counseling's expensive, isn't it? He's like, yeah, it is. He said, my wife tells me I need to go to counseling. And I go, I think you do. I said, I th it seems like you have a lot to unpack. And I said, but here's the thing. You got me for the next seven holes. I'm like, dude, get your money's worth. <laughs> at the end of the time, he looks at me and he goes, you know what? All I wanted to do today was get away from my family and be by myself. And he said, and now I look back and he said, I believe God wanted me to play golf with you. And I thought, all I wanted today I was mad at him when I even came on the golf course. Isn't that amazing? Like, how in the world? I'm like, God, you're exhausting me. I want to be mad at you. Like, I, I'm over it. I'm done. And then you keep putting me in situations where I just can't help it because they want to know. And I, it just over and over, I just see constantly, listen. God will use wherever we are. He uses our brokenness. And nothing that we have learned or go through is wasted if we're willing just to uh, be used. 
And so I, I think God's hilarious, but I will tell you this. I ended up going to Kit Carson RV Park because those sweet people somehow knew me and got me a spot. And I was able to stay at Kit Carson RV Park for the rest of July and August. I had hookups, I had electricity, I had dumping, I could take a shower and not turn off the water. I could drive back to Phoenix, not worry about that place, come back, it was like I had a little house. It was amazing, and so now I have decided, listen, I can be a trailer girl, but I am not gonna boondock. I am gonna pay the bill, girl. I am gonna go, and I'm gonna have hookups, and I'm gonna be in the RV park. And then I decided the last day I was doing my laundry about to leave, and I met this woman in the laundromat, and she goes, well, what do you do? <laughs> so I told her, and, um, and she said, well, what have you written? And I said, well, I wrote this Bible study, da da da, da. And she goes, well, I happen to be the chairman of Friends of Kit Carson. We have a Facebook page, and you know what? If you come next year, I would love to promote that Bible study on our Facebook page, and just maybe you could lead all the friends of Kit Carson in a Bible study, so I'm going to have an RV park Bible study, and I'm going to write that rental off. That's what I'm going to do. Amen to that. So you never know what I'm up to, girls, but what I'm telling you is that you need to be praying, and you must not have been praying hard enough for me over the summer. So that's it. That's your entertainment for the day. It took us 13 minutes. Praise God. All right. So if you are new to us, last year we went through the book of John. This is the way I teach. Um, I don't get in a hurry. I teach, and, I, and when I'm done in an hour, I stop. And then the next week I come back, and we start right where we left off, and we go through uh, a chapter at a time, and I think that is the most beautiful way to learn God's Word, and I often give you a lot to go home with and study on your own. I do not give you stuff to do, like I don't give you handouts and homework, but if you want to dig deeper, I give you plenty if you take notes to dig deeper. And so the hard part about today is that we have gotten through sort of around uh, chapter 8 and 9 of John. So if you aren't here, you're like, well, I really don't know anything to even begin. So today, I'm going to give a little bit of a bird's eye view of John. And if you were here last year, this is good for you too. Because if you've been with me all along, you know how important bird's eye views are. When I back up, very often, like I'll teach you the nitty gritty of something, but very often, especially in the Old Testament, I would back up and remind you of the bird's eye narrative. Do you remember that? That is vital for you to understand. This gospel of John, the more I study it, it is a masterpiece. And so I want you to see some of that from a bird's eye view. But the cool thing about John is that he gives us an amazing thesis statement. How many of you remember in English class the purpose of the thesis statement? Okay, it, it, you're basically telling in your paper, this is the purpose of what I'm writing about. This is what I'm going to prove. This is my mission statement. If you've ever had ministry, the mission statement uh, can be, and the thesis statement, can be one of the hardest things that you will ever come up with. It's so hard. 
because you want to narrow it down to one main thought. What am I trying to tell people? That is a very hard thing to do. He does that for us. We don't even have to guess as to why he wrote the Gospel of John because it's right here. He says, well, we'll look at it. So open up to John 20. You're, you're going to be using your Bibles today, just so you know. John 20, and I'm going to read 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs. So what is this going to tell you? That the book of John is going to have signs in it. He's chosen some. What is a sign? A sign points to something. Okay? So he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So this is not an exhaustive a biography of Jesus. It's not chronological necessarily. Uh, Matthew handled that pretty good. But he's saying there's lots of other stuff he did that I didn't choose to put in this book. But these, the ones I chose, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the purpose statement of John. So what's his purpose? I have written these things so that you can talk to me. Believe, okay? Today, that's kind of a, um, oh, it's kind of sketchy, this whole idea of belief. Because today, I feel like we've gotten to the place where we are just satisfied if somebody believes something. Well, you believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe. As long as you believe, we're all good. Well, I remember I've told you this story before. One day, Zachary was working out in the weight room, and at Stanford, one of his coaches was debating with him about creation versus evolution, and, and Zach was giving it to him pretty good. He was saying, okay, so you believe in a theory where genes gain knowledge over millions of years, over time. He said, but yet in your own theory, you have natural selection, which says that actually over time, we lose knowledge. And the guy, you know, the coach was like, you need to take a class at Stanford, the smartest people in the world. And Zach goes, I'll take a class at Stanford if you'll watch The Truth Project. And he's like, I'm not watching that junk. He said, so coach, you want me to be open-minded, but you won't be open-minded. He said, uh, he goes, hey, that's up to you. It's the great gamble. It's your gamble. And the coach says, what are you talking about? He said, well, coach, if I'm right and you're wrong, I've lost nothing. I actually think this style of life is best for culture. It's best for mankind, the biblical way of life. He said, but if you're right, he goes, if, if I'm right, if you're right and I'm wrong, he says, I've lost nothing. He said, but if I'm right and you're wrong, you've lost everything and you won't even investigate it. And by the way, as a man, you're leading the rest of the family your direction. I'm like, you're not going to play on Saturday. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be on the bench. And he looks at me and goes, I hate you, Hoffpower. And he walks away, and then later on, he came back, and he said, hey, Hoffpower, I don't want you to think I'm a Christian hater or anything. He said, I am a man of faith. And Zach looked at him, and he goes, coach, your faith is only as good as what your faith is in. That is what John is saying. I have written these certain things. I have put this masterpiece together so that you would believe, not just belief for belief's sake, 
but that you would believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. What title is that? It's the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. He is the promised one that was to come. And he's saying, listen, I don't want you just to believe in the title. You need to believe that he is the fulfillment of all that was promised. So what are like some of the main things that were promised about the coming one? Let's look at a few of them. Genesis 3, do you remember? That's where it all begins. Genesis 3, the proto-evangelium, the first good news in all the Bible, right in the middle of the punishments, if you remember. God looks at the serpent or the enemy now and says, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. We're going to see this a lot today, the tale of two seeds. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. So someone is coming that is going to be a redeemer. He is going to destroy the enemy and restore what was lost in the garden right away. Then you can go to Psalms 2. I thought I would read this out of the message. You can read it out of your ESV and and stuff, and that's awesome. But I'm going to tell you what, there is something about this message sometimes that is amazing. Psalms 2 is a, a psalm about the coming Messiah as king. And I don't know, it just speaks to me right now a, a lot. It says, why the big noise, nations? Why the mean plots, people? Earth leaders push for position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summit talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defiers. Let's get free of God. Cast loose from the Messiah. Heaven-throned God breaks out laughing. At first, he's amused at their presumption. Then he gets good and angry. Furiously, he shuts them up. Don't you know there's a king in Zion? A coronation banquet is spread for him on the holy summit. Let me tell you what God said next. He said, you are my son. And today is your birthday. What do you want? Name it. Nations as a present, continents as a prize. You can command them all to dance for you or throw them out with tomorrow's trash. So rebel kings, use your heads. Upstart judges, learn your lesson. Worship God in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode, but if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. That is so good. It's the idea of the coming king, the true king, the Messiah. How about Isaiah 53? It is the picture of the suffering servant who believes what we've heard and seen. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plan and a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. 
We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pain he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him. They ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own things, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to the slaughter and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul and said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant will make many righteous ones. And he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and did not flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest, and he took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. He was the redeemer to come. He was the king. He was the suffering servant. And I'm going to tell you what, he is the absolute judge. Do you remember what Daniel 7 says? Look at Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be there a few times today, actually. Daniel has a vision. This is what he sees. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the what? What's the title there? The Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I have written all this so that you would believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. That he is the fulfillment of all that has been promised about the coming Messiah from the, the thought of him being a redeemer and destroying the enemy to being the king of Israel, ruling the kingdoms of men, from being the suffering servant, the sheep taken to the shearer, the one who put on him the transgressions of us all, and the one who will have absolute dominion given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that his kingdom will be eternal. So I have chosen these signs in my paper, in my book, so that you will believe that Jesus is that. So that by believing, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then what? We're back to the thesis statement. What does he say? It's up there, I think. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Oh, that's a big statement that he's the son of God. He's like no other human. 
He is the true son of God, that he was able to do what Adam could not, nor could the nation of Israel do. But he's different. Why? He is divine. And we're going to see throughout John's entire gospel, he is always talking about this interesting relationship of what this God-man is like and this whole premise of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is constantly referring to this unique relationship that we call the Trinity. Because I'm going to tell you what, only divinity could fulfill the things we just talked about. Only the God-man. So I have written these things so that you would believe. And by the way, what do you think believing means? Absolutely putting your trust in something or someone, okay? I think it's called, it's the word pisteo. And it literally, like very often people give you examples of, oh, well, will that chair hold you? Okay, well, is it? No, why not? Because you're not sitting in it. Okay, you don't really believe that the chair can hold you until you do what? Sit in it. And you hear the idea of the bridge, that kind of thing. But to me, when I hear this now, I can't help but think of when I came to that crossroads where everything about my life depended on do I believe or not. When I lost my son, and I got to that point where I was so low, and I, I made that statement in Mother's Day, and that statement will forever be in my mind, that I arrived at an agony I could not escape, but I had a faith I could not deny. To me, at the top of that, I would write belief. Because if there was ever a reason I wanted to split, it was then. But I reminded myself, okay, wait a minute. Why is it I believe what I believe? And at the end of the day, I realized I was standing on the bridge. I was sitting in the chair. And no matter what happened, I had fully put my trust, to be quite honest, for everything in him. I have written these things. I could have written a lot of other things, but I didn't. I put a masterpiece together for you. I have written these things so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is not just carrying the title. He fulfilled every part of the promise of the coming one. How? He is the Son of God. He is divine. He is the God-man. He is God in flesh. And we're going to see that if you know him, you will know the Father. And that by believing, by stepping into that, you will have what? Life. And we're not talking about just physical life. You do get that, right? When you think about the temptation of Christ and the idea when he was starving to death and he had the temptation of, oh, we'll turn these stones into bread, right? And he says, Man does not live by bread alone. There's so much in that, but part of it is like, listen, just staying alive, just filling my tummy is not enough. Have you ever gotten to the place where you're so low, so depressed, so dark that you don't even want to eat the bread? You're like, life has to mean more than just staying alive. Life has to mean more than just working and filling my tummy. Man does not live by bread alone. It's not just about, it's not a life of just staying alive and filling our materialistic needs. He says, life comes 
from the very mouth of God, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you get the connection? The word, the word that created all things, the word that spoke, which involves breath, the spirit of God coming out in us. That is true life. There's more to life than bread because there's identity, there's worth, there's purpose, there's joy, there's relationship. He's like, that's what I created you to be. And the only way you're going to have life, real life and eternal life is by believing what? That Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one to come, that he was the son of God and that he did what he said he would do as our suffering servant, that he died on the cross, paid our penalty, and rose again, conquering death like he promised in Genesis 3, stomping the head of the enemy, and now he can breathe into us life. This is good stuff. That's just the mission statement. But he says, this is why I'm writing this book. So this better be some kind of really good book, or it is going to be a letdown. So what I decided to do, okay, is I called my daughter because I can't do this stuff. And there's a couple of things I'm going to tell you about. But Johnny's going to put up this uh, diagram because I thought sometimes you need to see something, all right? You need to have a bird's eye view. So I thought I'd organize the book of John for you just a little bit, all right? And um, if you want to, you could copy this down. You can uh, fill in. You can do whatever you want with it. But here is a bird's eye view of John. You're going to have John 1, which is an entire prologue, and that we're going to talk a lot about that today, because in John chapter 1, he is literally going to begin every theme that he is going to use throughout the entire gospel. He is going to use it in the prologue, and we're going to talk about a lot of, we're going to talk about that today. Then, after the prologue, he is going to then give you these amazing portraits, these masterpieces. Um, Have you ever gone to see, um, do you ever go look at art or masterpieces or portraits? Or the thing about that, not too long ago, I went with my one friend, I call her a Catholic Colleen because I have three Colleens, and she's my Catholic one, and she thinks that's the funniest thing in the world. And so she calls me and she says, hey, Shannon, I want you to go downtown with me because I want you to go to the Sistine Chapel exhibit and they have all of Michelangelo's work there. And what I want you to do is I want you to walk with me through those works and I want you to teach me the story. Okay. So we did. It was a blast. So I would look at the first uh, painting And the thing about looking at a painting like that, if you've ever realized this, when you first look at it, anybody can look at it and kind of see the main story of what's happening, right? But the more you know and the more you go to look at it again, the more you realize, oh my gosh, there's stuff on the edges over here that are a part of the story. Oh, oh my gosh, do you see that in the background? Let me tell you about that. That's so cool. That's really important to this story. So it's scattered its little pieces. I'm going to tell you what, that is what the gospel of John is like because he has given us all of these portraits that he wants us to see so that we will know that Jesus is the Christ. And 
If you have just come to know the Lord, very often they will say, read the book of John. Why? Because John does have a simplicity. You can read the book of John, know nothing, and you can come away knowing what? That Jesus was the Messiah, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that you, by believing in him, you can have life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But... Once you start studying the book of John and looking deeply into the portraits, the more you know, the more you see, and the deeper and deeper it gets. And so John has designed his gospel almost with portraits that just keep you coming all the time, and you never want to stop reading the book of John because you see more and more. What he does is he paints portraits. Uh, the reason I have Cana and Cana, if you see that, it's kind of odd how I did it, but is because these four events, right, start with Cana, and then if you read in the details, they end in Cana. So he frames it as these are four. Well, look at it. These are main Jewish institutions that he is going to talk about here. There's a wedding in chapter two, first part of chapter two, they were gonna have this temple incident. And then we're gonna, in chapter three, we're gonna have a big discussion with a rabbi. What's his name? Nicodemus. All this is on the videos from last year on itsmaryshannon.com where I really got into the narratives, okay? But we're looking at the bird's eye view. And then in chapter four, we have a situation at a well with the Samaritan woman, and then he frames that, Cana, Cana, so those four go together. Then you get to chapter five, and we're at the area where there are these porticos. It's really interesting, because at the end of chapter two, once again, he's under a portico. John is brilliant. He is a literary genius, and so he's kind of uh, bookmarked the porticos around this section, and what is this section? Jewish Feasts, holidays, right? So he's going to deal with Sabbath, and the biggest issue is going to be actually working on the Sabbath. That's going to be a problem. Uh, he's going to deal with Passover. I am the bread of life. Do you remember that? And then we're going to enter, he'll be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in uh, 7 through 9, those stories are in that uh, holiday. And then in chapter 10, Hanukkah. And so you'll have those eight events right there. Well, you'll have stories, but those eight portraits. And then do you see the, th the column in the center? This is going to be a turning point. It's actually the sixth sign of his seventh signs, and it is the raising of Lazarus. What happens there? What changes there? Do you know? How does the, the culture change after the death of Lazarus? They determined to kill him. Now we're moving in a completely different direction. And we have a, we go through seven days. And in chapter 13 through 17, Jesus is going to tell, be teaching about who he is. This is where he reestablishes over and over again that if you've seen me, what? You have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And it is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that. Um, and then 18 through 19, you have the cross, 
And then up in 20, you have the empty tomb, which, by the way, is the last of the seven signs. Okay? It's, proph it's prophesied up at the temple incident, but it's completed in chapter 20. And then in chapter 21, you have what I would call uh, an epilogue. Does that make sense to you? This is how it is laid out. And what he is saying is, I chose these specific portraits to be put together in this specific way for one purpose, and that is, if you look at all of these, they will point to what? That Jesus is the Messiah, and that he was the Son of God, and that he is the only way to have life. Does that make sense? All right? You're like, gosh, that's a lot. Well, if you're new, I'm going to tell you, uh, today is going to be a lot for you. And I don't want you freaking out about it because I'm going to give all kinds of things today as an overview. But when you come back next week, I'm going to do what I do. And that is I tell a really good narrative. You will come and we will, we will get to the place where I start walking you through. And I'm going to tell you narratives and, and theology and application. But today, I'm just showing you how amazing this is, okay? So just stick with me. I'm just giving you um, the themes. So let's look at the prologue. Get to John chapter one. I have to remind you of the themes because all of these themes are going to be played out in the book of John. Has anybody seen The Chosen? All right, I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you haven't seen it, I think it is phenomenal. Um, there is a scene, and I can't remember what season it is, is where John starts to write his gospel. It's season two. It is so beautifully done. Um, where, how in the world, John's sitting there, how in the world could I even begin? He's in tears. How could I even begin to tell people who he was? Where, where would I even start? If you've never written anything, I'm telling you what, it's hard sometimes to figure out, how do I get what is in here? Where do I even start? What is my opening statement? Well, his opening statement is quite a statement because look at the first three words that he writes. In the beginning. Now, you need to understand that when John is writing, he's writing to this Jewish audience who has the Hebrew Bible at the forefront of their mind. They know it inside and outside. You're going to see in this prologue, he is constantly talking in code because they know the same language. And if you don't know the language, you're going to miss stuff. So I'm going to call them hyperlinks to where your brain would just go, if you were Hebrew, it would originally go to a story because those two words or scenes just connected and you know this story so you get his point. So I'm constantly gonna be showing you where they and their mind would have hyperlinked, okay? Don't you have that relationship sometimes with friends? They can just mention, mention a place and you remember the story. Or they can mention a word or a person and you just start dying laughing because you know the story, or you feel their pain, or they don't even have to finish. Well, he is going to do a lot of that. But what he does is, how do I even begin to tell you who he is? I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to go back to, I'm going to tie this Jesus to the God of creation. Wow. 
That's a statement. I'm going to tell you who Jesus is by taking you back to the first three words of the Hebrew Bible in the beginning. I'm tying Jesus to the creator God. Yeah. In the beginning, before the beginning began, God, but this time he says what? In the beginning was the word. So he equates the word with the God of creation. I put on my notes, word equals God. Word equals God of creation. We studied last year that that word in the Greek is the word logos. And uh, even to the Greek, it was this idea of creating order from chaos. Um, It is the idea of realizing that there is some kind of divine reason behind the cosmos. To just merely look at creation, and isn't that what Romans 1 says, that we can see God's um, invisible qualities and his supernatural divine nature through what has been created? And so this idea of logos, this divine reason behind creation, he equates the word with the God of creation. Doesn't that make sense to you, though? Because how did God create in Genesis 1? And God said, and God said. There are 10 speaking events in Genesis chapter 1. And so you have this idea of the word, right, connected with the God of creation who spoke all things into existence. He is tying the two together in the most brilliant way for the Hebrew mind. And then he says, and the word was God, but what? The word was with God. The word is God, but somehow he's distinct from him. The word is the same as God, but somehow he is unique. Later on, we're going to find out that he puts on flesh. But let me tell you, there would have been some hyperlinks right here. To the Jewish mind, they would have thought Proverbs chapter 8 and Psalm 33. So we're going to look at that. And Proverbs, we're going to look at Proverbs 3. So let me show you some, some hyperlinks. Because if you think he's just come up with they've never heard the idea of God and then being with God in the fact of creation, it's here, okay? Look at Proverbs 3, 19. It says this, the Lord, how did he do it? By wisdom, okay. So the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heaven. So he founded the earth by wisdom, Okay, that's interesting. Go over to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 is talking about lady wisdom. Okay, this is what the book of Proverbs talks about. That's why I get so crazy when people teach Proverbs 31 like it's a woman. It's not a woman. She's not a woman. She's lady wisdom. Proverbs 31 is the summary of the entire book of Proverbs Who is this that is being described? It is a summary of what lady wisdom is. Who needs lady wisdom? Who needs this wife of valor? All of us. How do you find her? Because she's crying out in the streets. 
And so it's this idea of lady wisdom, and it says this, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And then look at verse 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman. So right here in the Proverbs, you have this idea that there is something with, beside God as an instrument of creation involving wisdom. So you have this idea happening in the Proverbs. And then look at Psalm 33, 6. And remember, they knew this. They had it memorized. Boy, I wish we did, don't you? Like that? Psalm 33, 6 says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Here are the hyperlinks. Here are where their mind went. Wait a minute. In the beginning was the word. Wisdom. Wisdom was with him from the beginning. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth. Oh, now we've just added something. By the breath? That's the Ruach, the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit involved in creation in Genesis 1? Yes. And the Spirit of God, what? Hovered over the deep. How about in the creation of man? And God breathed in our nostrils the Spirit. What about the beginning of the Israelite nation? Abram was changed to what? Abraham. Why? Because the letter H represents the sound it makes. It is the letter that represents the spirit or breath of God. It's how the word sounds. And so the breath of God was breathed into the life of Abram, who was dead and could have no children. And God breathed in him and made him alive again. And he breathed into Sarai, making her Sarah. And they were able to birth the beginning of the nation of Israel. So you have all of these ties together. In the beginning was the word, which involves the word, wisdom, the breath. And the word was the same as God, but what? But he was distinct from it. This is intense. He's already introduced the Trinity. By the power of God, that's how God always works. It is the power of God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's also how he created his church, by the way, salvation. God drew, Jesus did, the Spirit empowers. That's the best way I can describe mystery. And then it goes on to say, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. So here's some other words to put in that first column, all right? So you should have already put in that first column, word equal with God of creation. The word was God, was with God. 
The word involves breath, the ruha. This will remind you of all the themes that are coming. The Trinity. Now he introduces two more. He says that that word equals life. And that that life was the light of man. So you have this idea of life being light. You can also picture that in creation as well, can you not? Let there be light. And it was the life source. And that's what he's saying. And so it then goes and says, but in chapter one, it says this. It goes, all things were made through him and without him nothing made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the light shows up and it's shining in the darkness, but what is the climate gonna be like? Do you see that? It says that the darkness can't overcome it. So we already see what? Conflict. There's gonna be conflict because the darkness is going to try to overcome the light, but it can't. And if you have light and darkness, then the theme, if the light is life, then the theme is also gonna be light and darkness and life and death, right? Does that make sense to you? And we're gonna see these things come to life in the stories. It goes on in six through 13, in that section, it now gives us the introduction of John the Baptist. See that section in chapter one? Six through 13 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So you have this theme now running through that this theme of witness. There's gonna be this idea of witness. John says, I'm not the light. I just came to bear witness to the light. The true light, it says, will illuminate everyone. Look at that. The true light in verse nine, uh, is that nine? I can't see. Yeah, nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. He was not in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We'll get there. But do you see how it says the true light, which gives light to everyone? You're gonna see this theme. Actually, you did if you were here last year. Do you remember John, the section in John 3 with John 3.16? And do you remember we got to John 3.19? And I said, look at what this says. Because Jesus has just said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And then he says in John 3.19, this is the judgment. Okay, okay, well now our ears perk up. What's the judgment? He says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest the works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We talked about that last year. But the fact is, 
Jesus comes, the light is coming. It illuminates everyone. The judgment isn't his. The judgment is within us. Will you turn away from the light and walk back into the darkness? Or will you go into the light and accept him, which then reveals the work he has done? It was never about you to begin with. It's a beautiful idea, and he's setting it up already. And then, so you have this idea of witness that's going to come throughout. You also have an idea of a new family. Listen to this. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to what they're like. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So already in this beginning, you have this idea that there are going to be children of God. This uh, new family, new children, some kind of new seed that is going to be born from above by God. Not born of blood or human will, but born from God, it says. So there's going to be a new kind of human. Do you understand that? He's already telling you. Something new is coming. There's going to be a new family, a new seed, and that new seed is going to start from above. And he's setting that, and I call it the tale of two seeds. Here's hyperlinks. See, if you know the Old Testament, you immediately, when I say the tale of two seeds, you go back to Genesis 3. And I will put hatred between you and the woman between her seed and your seed. What? Does that just say right there that from that moment, we're going to see what? Two seeds. I'll give you another one. I'll give you a forecast. Look at John 8. John 8, 38. This is a conversation Jesus is going to have with the relig religious establishment. And see if it sounds familiar now that you know themes that are going to be running through. Actually, I'm going to start with uh, 839. It says this, then Jesus answered him. Then, no, they answered him. So they're speaking to Jesus. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. Ooh. They said to him, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Well, that was just rude. Uh, we have one father, and they're, they're saying it's God. So what are they claiming to be? Children of God. But the children of God, from the theme at the very beginning, are going to be a new seed, a new ch children, and they are going to be born what? From God, from above. But this is what they're claiming. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What did he just tell them? No, you don't understand. This is the tale of two seeds. 
From the very beginning, he has said, the light came into the world. His own did not receive him, but some will. And those who receive him will be called the children of God from above. There are two seeds, the seed of woman, the seed of the enemy. There are two seeds, and the seed of God will be born from above. It will be a spiritual birth. Where are you going to see that again in that? We, we talked about it last year. Where do we have this whole idea of being born from above? To be born again. I'm going to beat y'all. Nicodemus, right? Chapter three. You see what he's doing? In chapter one, he's establishing literally everything. Oh my gosh. Everything that he is going to teach about. Everything. You cannot study the book of John if you do not know what he has set up in the very first chapter of what he's going to teach, okay? And so I know I'm out of time, but my last thing that I'm going to tell you is the next thing he says is that this word is going to put on flesh and he's going to dwell, the, the word really is tabernacle among us. Do you think that's a hyperlink? Your mind should have originally gone straight into Exodus and the idea of what? The tabernacle. I'm going to remind you what that tabernacle was for, and I'm going to remind you that the glory of God abided over that tabernacle. And what is the next statement? And we beheld his glory. Every bit of this first chapter is he is establishing all the identities of who Jesus is, all the themes, and the rest of this masterpiece is going to be showing you those things. Now, how many of you are completely overwhelmed because you've never been to a Bible study? You're like, I know nothing. This didn't make a lick sense to me. Well, don't be, okay? Because you don't have to, and and some of you shouldn't, and it's okay, but we're going to dig in it together because I promise you, once you start doing this and you see these mysteries and all of it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I just love it. And I have 10 more pages of notes um, to go. We're going to look at this prologue. I'm going to establish every theme for you, and then I'm going to give you basically just the highlights, literally just about that much, on each of the portraits that we already went through showing how they fit into that. And then we're going to start in that portrait that says Feast of Tabernacles, and we're going to look at that scene and progress through. I promise you, this gospel is amazing. What could you walk out of here today? You could walk out of here a lot. That John is telling you that Jesus was the word, the reason behind all of creation. That he was, he was the God of creation. He is distinct from. That his word breathes the spirit that gives us life. And that by believing in him, you could have life. We could already learn that, right? How many want to come back and learn the rest? Okay, here we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Lord, even your introductions are awesome. And so I just, I thank you that my face gets to be in this amazing book. I thank you 
for the brilliance, the creativity, the eyewitness. I would thank you for John's sold-out heart that he created such a masterpiece. And he created it for one reason and one reason alone. He knew that the only way that we could have true life was to be born again from above, was to believe that you were the promised one, you are the son of God, and you fulfilled everything required for us to have new life, and you give it to us as a gift. And so God, this reminds me today that all I need is found in you. All I need, everything I need for life is found in you. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to make our hearts hunger after the word. It is a treasure chest of uh, just depth and love. And so we worship you today. Bring us back together next week as we study your amazing Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.